Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You are listening to Missed Apex iRacing Podcast, making you happier, wiser, and faster. Welcome to the Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. This is the podcast for the everyday hobbyist iRacer. Sometimes we bring you experts like Brad Philpot. How's it going, Brad? It's going really well. Nice to uh, be here with everyone this afternoon, Spanners. And Brad gives us an insight into real-life racing and sim racing. He's got credentials uh, longer than your arm, but I also occasionally just bring you some of my muggy iRacing mates, like my Missed Apex F1 co-host, Matt Durumpitz. How's it going, Matt? Uh, it's going pretty well. I'm excited to be on the panel and steal the show from you and ask my own questions. You can ask your own questions. I'm just, I'm upset that over the course of our iRacing careers over the last couple of years, you've gotten a lot faster than me. I was comfortably faster than you for a good year, and then you've just gotten a jump on me, and I, I hate it. It's destroying me. Really? I don't have that sense that I'm any faster than you. I feel like you're, if anything, slightly faster than me, but sometimes I think I make out better because I focus on consistency and average speed instead of like just being as fast as possible. No, you don't do that. You don't get to play the underdog card anymore. I'm on to you. Uh, we're also joined by someone who's definitely not an underdog. It's Kyle Power. How is it going, my edgy friend? Very well, thank you, Spanners. Uh, delighted to be on this pod and looking forward to discussing one of my favourite all-time hobbies. And your other uh, hobbies are keeping dragons and lizards. Yep, uh, keeping little Dimitri behind me. I don't know if you get the camera on, but he's a very hungry little bearded dragon. And also patrolling the neighbourhood and making sure nobody's stepping out of line, vigilante style. I just asked Carl that so the listeners would know he's weird and edgy. Uh, today we're going to be talking uh, about a variety of things, actually. Um, I want to start off with a whose fault is this? Um, and, and then uh, I think I want to talk about uh, the Lucas Oil truck racing that we did on Monday night, a video of which will be coming out as soon as the video editor gets his act together. <clears throat> That's me. Um, I'm struggling with the video edit, but it will be out very, very soon if you follow Spanners iRacing on on YouTube and you can follow us and get all our videos there. And then we're going to talk about some race mentality and game plans and a bit of strategy once we're in a race. So let's start off with... Whose fault is it? Okay, so this is an incident from our training race for the F3 officials on a Monday night. We all swarm together. We have a practice session for about two hours, and then we race together. 
I dropped into the practice session somewhat late. It's F3 at Road America. And I'll lay out the scenario for you. I was focused on my stream, trying to solve problems, was not up to pace yet. The last time I had done uh, Road America was in the Formula Renault 2.0. So I think it's like three corners from the end. After the carousel, there's a long straight and then a tight right-hander before you go left up the hill and then right again into the final straight. So my breaking point in the Formula Renault 2.0 there was around the three mark. And so I'd not zoned in yet. So I was breaking at three, making sure I could just make the turn. I was very much in that stage where I was just trying to get round in one piece. The practice session ends. We go into our practice race and there's a driver behind me who is a lot faster closes up a delta very very quickly we get to that breaking point in question they're very very close i take my breaking point at around three they had said later that their breaking point is at two you can guess what happened i ended up with an f3 in my gearbox both of us taken out of the race so brad whose fault is it so you can argue this a couple of ways and it depends on uh, a couple more details but you could argue, first of all, that it was maybe your fault for entering a race and being in people's way when you were breaking <laughs> a third, by the sounds of it, too early, which is quite a yeah. long way too early. Um, you could argue it was the car following you's fault because in a lot of a lot of times it's up to the overtaking car. Uh, it's, it's their responsibility to overtake safely or at least initiate the pass safely. But in it sounds to me like he wasn't trying to pass you and that you just caught him out by just how slow you are. So he's not here to defend himself, and that's part of the plan, Kyle. Uh, my my sort of defense in that, and I'm, I'm willing to accept that, you know, I should be up to speed, and I wasn't. Um, but if you're closing in on someone very quickly, it's safe to assume that they're not going to be braking and accelerating at the same points as you. True, but again, within reason. So even if you're catching someone pretty quickly and they break 100 yards earlier than you are expecting, I don't think it's unfair um, to put the blame onto you for that because you just can't predict someone's going to break that early. Now, it depends how long he's been sat behind you, but there is within reason. If it was a couple of meters early, if it was sort of 15 meters early, then you could argue, yeah, that's okay. But that much earlier, he's still behind you. And if he's going to plan the overtake, he was maybe planning to pull out at the last minute and he didn't have the chance. Um, yes, you can put a little bit of blame on them, but mainly I'd say if it's that much earlier, then you have to take it on the chin, I think, for that All one. All right, well, it wasn't 100 metres, but anyway, Brad. Oh, so those those one, two and three boards aren't in 100 metre segments. That, that's what I thought. They, they typically oh, they okay. can be. Okay, I don't know. I don't actually know I the boards you're talking about. I think it's yards. It's an American track, so is it not in yards? Okay, it, it's still significant. I think you'd argue in... In other scenarios, if this was the real world and you had agreed to be out on track well before you were prepared to be on track, you know, you were in a race before you actually really knew how to drive the car around there, then there's an accepted level of ability that everybody in the race is going to assume the other drivers have. And there'll be a range at which, you know, from best driver to worst driver that they're going to be expecting. And if you're way outside of that range, it's probably reasonable to not put the blame on the car that crashed into the back of you. I appreciate this isn't real life and it's a practice race, which is the reason why you weren't prepared. Because if this was more important, you would have been prepared and this situation wouldn't have happened. At end of the day, Carl, you know, I was, I'm slow. I was slow. Uh, but uh, iRacing is a, a mixed ability f- platform. You know, it, there is iRating to separate you out into the correct splits, but you can very often find yourself 
in a, a series where there's not many splits, you can find yourself with some genuinely slow people. Um, so it is quite a skill to be able to kind of read that ahead of you. And and it can be as, as much the other person's fault as you like. But if you've ended up in the back end of someone, you've still ruined your race. So I think from a point of view of like trying to, trying to finish as many races as possible. Oh, yes. Like, and it's kind of true with any accident, really. You always have to look at what you have done and what you could have done to avoid that. It's the famous Reddit response to just about every whose fault is this post is what could you have done yeah. differently? I have fallen foul of this very um, same situation in an official top split F3 race before. I think Brad has also got something um, similar to this where I... I I actually ended my my crazy zero X streak of races because of somebody in top split. They were over four KI rating. They braked like 50 meters earlier than they should have done on the first lap. And I just had nowhere to go but pile into the back of them. They sent me a big apology afterwards. But there's certain situations where you can't really do much about it. But you always have a responsibility on you, as Brad said, to try to read that situation ahead. If you see someone's weaving about a little bit, you see someone's got a damaged wing, give them a bit of a wider berth. Uh, Matt? Well, I, I'm I'm just thinking that whenever I'm in a situation like that, because I do some of the endurance racing that you bailed on. I didn't bail on it. They started five hours late. Well, there was that too. Um, I often find that whenever a car, be it of my own class or a faster class, is approaching, uh, I very much want to get them by me before I get to that turn, if at all possible. If someone's that much faster than me, I don't want to waste time fighting them. Because it's just going to it's going to slow me down more than it's going to slow them down. And it increases the risk that you're going to have a crash. So the tiniest of lifts will let them by before they get to that braking zone. And then you can follow them through the turn and maybe catch a draft down the next straight. Help yourself out a little bit. So even in an, even when I'm not as fast, when I'm second slower than other cars, I will look for those opportunities to protect myself and to let the other competitors by without hindering them unnecessarily. In, in my slight defense in this session, I had declared that I wasn't up to pace yet and I was, had no intention of like defending. I was going to let him sail down the inside and carry on. Uh, but Brad, I think as um, Carl alluded to, y- you never know in a race situation, has someone got suspension damage, wing damage? It's hard to tell. You're right. It is hard to tell. Um, and in that situation, that is why it's the onus would be on the driver with the damage to get the hell out of the way because the other drivers can't know what your problems are. So blindly just staying on the racing line and turning across on people who are capable of going a lot quicker than you just isn't a sensible thing to do. And I've encountered this myself frequently. From my point of view, I offer, um, I offer suffer a kind of inverse situation to you where during my quest for I rating, where I just want clean races and to, to not have any drama during the race, I'll quite often find myself lapping slower cars and then being paranoid that they're going to rear end me not because they're braking later than me and because they're faster or better, but generally because they kind of get sucked into your braking point, but they're not actually capable of stopping that lane. And (laughs) they will then suddenly realize, oh no, I've missed my braking point and pile into the back of you. So anytime I'm lapping someone, I'm watching the mirror during the braking zone to get out of the way as quickly as I can if I see them closing in on me. That's just like a standard thing, especially in the endurance races like Matt was talking about. So I've definitely had that. And when you, you kind of, you're looking in your mirror, you're on the brakes and you think they're too close. You find yourself lifting and accepting you're not going to make the apex just to get out of their way. Yep. Just providing them with a little bit of extra space, kind of just taking into account 
their mistake so you can live to fight another day. You don't have to do this. It, you know, they don't have a right to for you to to give them extra room and, and help them out. But at the end of the day, like you always say, um, if you're on a zebra crossing and you yeah. get run over, you've still been run over. So yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't it. matter if it wasn't your fault. That's a classic scene from the British Empire. But Carol, it was my right of way. Yeah, that doesn't help, Carl. No, it doesn't. And what Brad just said there, you're looking in the mirrors and almost expecting, well, kind of trying to mitigate against somebody making a mistake behind you. This is not only true and very handy when you're lapping people. It's very true on the first laps of races going into big braking zones, particularly in the F3 championship. I had a race at Donington where four times I had to. I I noticed somebody lunging for miles behind. They were never going to make the corner. I saw them in my mirror. I opened the wheel up and let them just come in and just bump me. I had to go off the track at one point to avoid being taken out. If I wasn't paying attention, I would have turned in and it would have been a crash and I would have been out of the race. So your mirrors are an extremely powerful tool, whether you're lapping or defending. Okay, so what we're saying here actually is um, slightly interesting. So we're saying that in a race, I should be up to speed. Otherwise, I'm a nuisance. Uh, that, that isn't the reality of, of iRacing public forums, though, is it? I would say it is. I, I would never dare enter a race unless I feel I've done absolutely ample practice and, and I can lap very consistently, qualify very well. I would never just enter hoping that I'll work it out because that is just a <laughs> recipe for losing iRating and safety rating. Uh, pretty, well, I think we're all pretty similar on that. So just to be clear, anyone who's listening here, it was a private practice session that we uh, at Missed Apex run. It's our swarm. Um, you'd be more than welcome to get involved as well. Email me at spannersready at gmail.com. We get together on a Monday. We discuss, uh, we, we have a practice session on the track that's coming up in the F3 officials. Um, we, we talk about setups. We talk about breakpoints. We help teach each other. We learn from these alien type people like Kyle and uh, Danny and uh, uh, and Alex and Brad. We, we learn from all these these experienced guys as well. Uh, and then we all go in in the same kit in our swarm livery. We're black and red this season and we go and attack the official ladders. Um, so none of you backed me up um, on the whose fault is it. So you're all fired. Right. OK, we're going to we're going to talk about some of this uh, race mentality stuff. But first off, uh, thank you guys for joining me on Monday night where I streamed and uh, put together a video and a little session because I wanted to do something a bit different and test out my streaming equipment. And we did Lucas Oil trucks on the Rallycross circuit at Daytona on the Legacy Daytona track. Now, I've, I've never done Rallycross before, only briefly watched it on British TV. And I, I think I believe it was on Transworld Sport. Not that Kyle or, or Brad will be old enough to remember that. Oh, they are just about. <laughs> um, Rallycross uh, trumpets. I mean, I just had the most fantastic time. It felt very American. Big old truck going around the dirt, hitting people. Yeehaw. Yeah, those super trucks are oodles of fun uh, to drive and, and to watch, too. They, they just they look crazy and they are crazy. I, I did find it hard to get used to just having three gears. I can't tell you the number of times I tried to upshift to fourth on yep. the way. Still not, still not fourth <laughs> gear. First turn. I'm like, where is it? Where is it? Oh, right. Yeah. It's not there. Uh, but I also enjoyed it just because it was, it was uh, a lark and there was no I rating or safety rating at stake. So you could just buzz around and have some fun. No, I, I did turn the damage off as well. Cause I suspected things like Van Jean trying to deliberately, uh, take out Philpot would happen. Um, he si- he made a mistake. He signaled it, Brad. He said, "I'm going to punt Brad now." Uh, and I saw your wheel movements. I was I studied them 
uh, quite a lot. But you kind of you went into the turn and you almost drew him into the punt and then opened the steering up before he'd made the move. And I was like, huh, Brad really saw that coming. Yeah, I mean, it didn't really matter that he signaled it by saying it. I knew he would do it anyway. So, um, so yeah, I just saw him coming and tried to keep out of the way. And he he just fell for it exactly as I hoped he would. Uh, Kyle, how do you find those um, those uh, skills that you need for rallycross? Are they a distraction from when we go back to F3? Or are they? is that something that can add to it? Because you hear about F1 drivers going and doing like rally and stuff and diversifying their skills. Am I helping or harming myself, do you think? I'd very much say that you are that you are helping uh it's not a case of yes we're having fun we floor it and just go over jumps yeehaw it's, it's incredibly skillful you need an awful lot of vehicle control doing that and you're learning fantastic vehicle control more often than not you're sideways and slightly out of control so you're learning how to slide use the slide to your advantage because if you're not sliding they don't really go around corners nope so you have to slide them um so you're actually getting incredible amount of skills look at the um that's why maybe you could say Finnish drivers are so good at Formula One and racing because they spend a lot of time on slippery roads and doing rally and stuff like that. And it just tra- and it does transfer over. Loeb was incredibly quick when he got put in the Formula One car, for instance. Um, you you learn incredible vehicle control doing off-road driving. If you want to see the Missed Apex crew uh, doing this in a poorly uh, poorly edited video that was far too ambitious, uh, it's not up right this second. But if you go and subscribe to Spanner's iRacing stream. On YouTube, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, you can go go and find any such videos that we put up. Uh, uh, Brad, I've seen you tire testing, and you've put up videos of yourself in snow uh, and sliding things around. Uh, is the car control transferable, or is it is it two different things between controlling it on dirt and snow and then going onto a very grippy track with slicks? Uh, it's completely transferable. Um, you just have a much longer and wider window to to see the slide coming and to feel it coming and respond to it when you're on a lower grip surface, because the the vehicle you're in loses traction and begins sliding generally at a much lower speed and generally much more progressively. Whereas when you're talking about slick tires on a, on a track, a dry track in particular, it tends to be much more of a, an immediate thing. The car is gripping and then it breaks away into a slide very quickly. And if you don't fix it immediately, you're going to be out of control, spinning off the track, that kind of thing. So um, I'd say if you had the opportunity, it'd be great for people to learn on a low grip surface like the like the rally cross we did or, or like on snow. And then they'll understand in a bit more resolution um, what's actually happening and how your inputs fix the thing. Then when yeah. you're on, on a dry track on slicks, you've got a bit more understanding and hopefully it's more natural to correct. Uh, Matt, you're you're like a fellow non-racer. I mean, you've only done yeah. you've only done the kart races that you've done with Missed Apex, and I'm I'm similarly inexperienced in racing. Uh, but with the F3 and the FR2, I I really struggle catching the back end. If the back end's going to go, it's going to go, and I I don't know about it. Yeah, I I have actually installed a program called IRFFB, which helps me with that because it provides more detailed uh, input into my force feedback steering wheel and you can you can tell the wheel to give you how much information about the rear end going and how much you don't need so so there's a total input like zero to 100 and then there's an offset so like the first 15 percent of the rear end going i don't really need it just distracts me but once it gets to this number if i know about it i can catch it is he talking weirdness, uh, Brad? Have you heard about this? I've never heard of this cheating new app that Matt's got. 
I do feel like I've heard of it before. And I feel like maybe a long time ago, I might have tried it and decided it wasn't worth it. But the only thing I'd say is uh, in response to, I mean, maybe this is helping Matt for his specific situation, but I would very much want to know the first 15% of of the rear sliding because that's the most important bit, because that's the bit where you've got a chance to fix it before it gets worse. So um, it's interesting that that this is a a thing that Matt feels is, is aiding him. Well, I mean, I can obviously anecdote is not data, but having the program installed and properly set up has allowed me allowed me to uh, certainly in the FR2 catch spins that formerly I wasn't able to catch. And as Ultimately, far as yeah, it doesn't matter how you know how you achieve the aim. If if you if you're able to control the thing better and get faster, then you know it's not like there is a exact way you have to do exact method you have to use or a specific driving style that everybody must um, use or implement so if it works for you then it works okay brad how far do i let my rear go on a f3 for example so a great fun with those lucas oil trucks and you almost you had to be on the power to turn otherwise the thing just wouldn't get rotated and looking at the replays you know, we were way sideways, like at 90 degrees with the wheels turning back towards uh, the way we wanted to go. It was great fun. Uh, with the Formula 3, do, do you actually want to be letting the rear go a little bit to get it rotated or is that a disaster? Uh, the only time I'd ever say that you want any oversteer at all is maybe a very, very slight amount of slip on corner exit, maybe out of a slow corner. Um, in general, if you're having to apply opposite lock at all, or even reduce the steering to kind of zero degrees when you're mid-corner, so not even uh, actually applying opposite lock, you've gone too far. Um, the car should be stable, gripping, and just turning, following the path you want it to. Um, yeah, like I said, it's only when you're exiting a corner and you're trying to get on the power as early as possible, and it's inevitable there'll be a little bit of squirming from the rear that maybe you could give up, you know, four or five percent um uh, opposite lock or, or sidewaysness at that point but even then you're trying your hardest to not quite get to that point carl when we moved to f3 you said to me you've got to get it slid into all the corners um not quite i said you can catch it and you can um <laughs> slide it there is a feeling with the f3 particularly on iRacing where um where when the car's fully fully loaded and you're really leaning and rolling on the tires it gets into this extra sort of rotation particularly in a high speed stuff and it, and it can feel like it's sideways but i think it's because the dynamic of the car you're just leaning on the tire and the tires are almost rolling over that's the sweet spot that's ideal it feels like it's sliding but it's kind of not the good thing with the f3 on iRacing is you can actually save it if you do get a bit of a whopper on you can actually save it now this is a trait quite often of cars which have um, very high profile tires, so tall sidewalls where you can actually have the tread still fully in contact with the floor, not sliding, uh, you know, gripping, but the the tire flexes enough that the vehicle actually does produce a small amount of yaw, which gives you the sensation of being sideways, but you're not having to actually apply any opposite lock. And it's quite key to not respond to that as if the back's sliding and just to kind of roll with it and, and stick with it until the point it does actually slide and making that distinction of, of working out how much of this is tire squish and how much of this is actual sliding um, is quite important. I'm not a hundred percent sure quite how accurate iRacing's tire model is in that regard. I hope that it's modeling that it looks like it is on the replays when you're up close. Um, but that's certainly a thing I have to comment on during my day job um, is, is trying to make that distinction between squish and slide. Is that the technical term tire squish? It, it can be. I can use whatever terms I want. 
Well, uh, one of the things I've noticed about the F3 is that, especially I think with the setups that people tend to use, is they do run pretty high camera angles. And that seems like that's going to exacerbate that uh, quality of the high sidewalls, because as you're going through the turn, it's actually moving the outside tire more onto its contact patch, which will give you that more of a feeling of a slide while the tire is actually gripping up into the turn. Yeah. And to follow up what Brad was saying, saying earlier, you, you don't really want to get to the point where you're actually sliding. As soon as you are starting to slide, you are then overheating your tires and you will be into a vicious death spiral of misery. Once you keep sliding, okay. you'll go into the next corner and then you'll lose the rear end and you'll, yeah, and you'll be stuck and not really realizing what's happening. It's because you have cooked your rear tires. Now, I, I with the F3, I feel like I've made progress in the last few weeks, especially since we started this this program, to be honest, this podcast. Um, but I'm still a good second and a half to two seconds off, like when I look at the race pace of what they're doing in the top splits and what I'm doing. So I'm still a, a fair bit off. I'm, Matt, Matt, you're a little ahead of me, but you're in the kind of same zone. Uh, my fear was that to make up that second which would kind of make me competitive in the midfield of a top split, say, uh, that I really had to kind of get this F3 sideways, which I didn't I didn't want to do. It goes against everything. Like, I don't want to do it in a car. I didn't even really want to do it in the trucks. But it feels like what you're saying is, no, I never really want to get sliding with the back end. So for me, I mean, you've seen how I drive. People say I drive quite similar to you, Kyle. So it really is for me about the margins of braking harder, longer, shorter, getting on the power earlier and controlling it, rather than like some mystical rally driving that i'm meant to be invoking also it's a confidence thing and being able to lean on it hard enough to get into that zone where you're getting this yaw and you're getting this rotation and everything's working in harmony probably because you're quite used to driving the formula renault 2.0 which is incredibly rigid and has very little allowance for or feeling when you get onto the edge it will just snap and it's gone so when i first started jump transitioning back into the f3 again uh, it took me a while to build up that trust again in the car that you can lean on it that hard to get into the ideal stage. If you don't lean on it hard enough, you are going to be slow. Well, this brings up something that I've noticed in my own driving um, and that I actually wanted to ask about because of a comment you made before the show there, Kyle, is um, I did the I did a race at Road Atlanta and I was, as usual, slower than the people I was racing with, uh, but i I always work hard, as, as Spanner says, to try and be within about that two-second gap of the fastest people in my field. And then I just try and maintain that high average speed in the race. And that usually works out because I'm a fairly safe driver. I can avoid the carnage, and I don't have a lot of contacts usually. But I noticed coming into turn one at Road Atlanta that I found a spot where I could brake and start turning. And I could feel the traction control coming on and I could just simply floor it. And as soon as I found that place to look to break and that place to look to turn in, that I gained a half a second a lap just from that one thing. And I'm realizing, like even at Road America, as I'm finding pace, it's almost always because I'm it's always all because I found a thing with my eyes to focus on and, and be more consistent. And I was just wondering, how do you find those? Like, like, how do, how do I make myself find those so that I can get quicker? Because like Spanners, I feel like I've always been this like two seconds behind you and Brad. Yeah. And it never goes away, no matter how much faster I know th- I'm, I'm much better. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'm not really, am I at all? And I'm scared as well that anytime I do find 
any good pace at a track, it's because we've been chatting in our swarms and Carl has said, oh no, you, you want to turn in at the blue marker, not the red and white curb. And then I do that and I get faster. But I'd never have figured that out by myself. With a lot of it is experimenting. So how I approach it into a practice session, the first thing, even if it's a familiar track, but a different car, I, I essentially consider it as, as in I'm having to relearn the track again. You're having to relearn parameters to which you can drive to. So I break it down. Uh, it's a bit boring. I'll take quite an analytical approach to it, but I break it down to just component parts. I imagine the track as a computer program and each corner a subroutine within that computer program. So my subroutine for turn two at Road America, for instance, would be look for the the two marker board, hit the marker board, brake, come down two gears, lift off the brake, turn in, get on the throttle. As soon as I hit the apex, start changing up on the way down. I've got six or seven lines of a subroutine to follow. So when I go out for practice, I'm purely looking for these visual references at first and I'm experimenting and I'm making mental notes. And as soon as I've got first corner down, I'm like, right, that's great. Maybe even sometimes on your outlap, you accidentally break too late and you get the corner and make it round you're like oh wow okay mental note next time especially when the tires warm i'll try that and see if that's repeatable and you're making these mental notes and building a picture of how to drive the track to a prescribed pattern well this is good we had a question from our fellow panelist at missed apex alex van jean because he knew that you guys would have an insight to this i'll just read his question uh, what does your practice look like you have your next race of a series coming up it's a new track for you in that car what is your approach how do you get to the pace and find your limits do you have a routine? So Carl started to answer that, um, but you are very much an engineering nerd. You know, you've got wild, crazy hair. Instead of a belt, you often find a shoelace or something just to tie two of the belt loops together with. Um, that's you. That's you, that is. Uh, Brad. Bags on the feet, yep. Brad, you're more of a simple-minded race driver kind of guy. Just get out there and go fast. You know, do you have a routine or you just, I just do it somehow because I'm amazing. So I actually, although I wouldn't use the same terms as Kyle, um, I actually do a very, very similar thing to him. So if it's a track I don't know, but I'm assuming I know the car. So we're just talking about the track here. Um, I have a, a knowledge base of corner types and and how you know how tight a corner is, how wide the track is, what kind of curves there are. And so it's not like I'm going into this new track entirely cold. I, I've got a lot of banked experience um, on how to drive certain corners in, in different vehicles. Um, so uh, just checking spanners is still there before I carry on explaining well, this. Do you know what I had to do? I just turned my video off so I could pick my nose and I didn't want that on the podcast, but now everyone's got to know that that's why I turned my video off during the call. Cause I, uh, that's what I do on the missed apex one as well. But yeah, my I, nose I is clean you, now. Your internet broken or no, something. Right, it's, I'm just be quiet. I, I know. I feel on. like I need to be clear that it was into a tissue and in the bin, but yeah, that's what I did. I'm a human being with, with a, had a blocked up nose. Uh, please continue corner types. So I have a knowledge bank of certain types of corners in this vehicle to apply to each of the, the corners on this new track. And obviously, as you arrive at a corner, you know how long the straight preceding it has been because you've just driven down it. So you've got a reasonable expectation to work with before you've ever even driven the corner. And all you do then from that point onwards is just refine it. So you'll try it kind of as a rough so say, for example, a standard hairpin with a medium length straight before it. I know that I'm going to have to slow down quite a lot it's probably going to be second gear if it's a normal kind of hairpin and my apex is going to be at a low speed somewhere in the middle of the corner. So I'll just do that standard kind of rough template the first time I go through. And then based on how that worked out, if maybe I arrived at the apex and actually I found I was being pushed a bit too far wide, I'll remember that next time I'll go through slightly slower. Um, you know, if I thought I could break later, then I'll remember that for next time and I'll break later. 
all the straight bits, all the flat out sections, um, I'll discount quite early in my mind. I've described this about learning cart tracks in the past. So um, when you're learning a new track, it, if you can kind of just cross out some of the corners or sections of the track in your mind, like obviously all the straights, everyone can drive a straight, any corners which are easily flat out, you just you can just do them the first time and never worry about them again. Um, and And then that's way fewer things you need to carry on to your learning process so it's probably a similar thing to what Carl's doing it's probably a similar thing to what a lot of people are doing just not actually thinking about it uh, but that's how I would go about learning a new track especially as Carl was saying remembering what worked what didn't work and then fixing it the next time round, and hopefully every time getting slightly better yeah and to further that um don't be afraid to experiment if you're on a practice on your own and you are safely making a corner every single time don't rest on your sort of laurels dead. Don't just think, oh, I've got that one nailed. It's never perfect. For a racing driver, it never will be perfect. So if you've nailed this corner three times on the trot, try moving your braking a little bit deeper. See if you can gain anything more. Uh, a bit like Trumpet said, maybe look for a different turning point or a visual reference. Experiment. It will soon become very obvious what is working and what is not. That is where your delta time and your optimum lap delta time in particular, when you're learning these things, is a very, very powerful tool to use because it will give you a very visual reference right in front of your eyes. It will be green or red. If you're green, you're good. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So in our Mist Apex Swarm, it is a, a mixed ability group. I think that's the politest way to say it with me and Matt, I think, uh, firmly in the, the middle slash bottom, bottom middle. And you see different approaches when we start our practice sessions. So, for example, our co-host Chris Stevens never seems to finish a lap for about an hour. And he spends the first hour going, 
This track's terrible. There's no grip. I'm in the wall. And what he's probably doing then is just going for every corner to get it perfect immediately, first time, and then going into a wall. For me, as we've seen from a guy driving into the back of me because I was braking too early, I, I feel like I'm in a real car. It's so realistic that I'm like, just want to make it round safely. And I try and act as if this is a real car on a real thing. And I definitely don't want to crash and hurt myself. I don't know. That's how that's how I enjoy it. That's the mentality. I, I could probably be faster if I treated it more like a video game. Um, but there's those different approaches, Carl, where you can either go out there and find the limit straight away and go over it or just get confidence up, which is what I try to do, getting around the corners and then, and then building up from there. But in sim racing, you've got that extra thing that you don't have in karting because in karting, the wall comes at you. And in real races, there's a wall coming at you. So, you know, how, how do you find that approach? Yeah, you have a nice safety net in in a sim racing. And that's why um, I get very little incidents during the races. But if you look at my incident rate during practices, they're huge because I'm experimenting and I'm exploring the limit because there isn't much of a consequence to go and do so if you're if you are lacking consequence uh, sorry if you are lacking confidence and you're trying to go out this is where i i apply the analytical approach and trying to break everything down into little parts oh i've got a question so carl you've actually taken over setting up our practice sessions at the moment for the swarm uh, danny henny who is one of our faster drivers in that swarm will turn damage off when he runs a practice session how do you and brad approach that uh i personally would have damage on because iRacing has got for certain cars, particularly the F3 has a very good damage model. So if you are running a big exit curb, for instance, you could be damaging your floor and your diffuser and not realizing it. So if you don't have damage on, you're not getting a true representation of what you will face in the official races. You practice without damage on, you keep doing this, you go into an official practice or race first lap, you've ruined your diffuser over a curb that you've been using every lap. Then all of your, all, all of your rhythm and how you drive the circuit is then changed, then you're in trouble. So I always say it's best to have the damage on always. But Brad, when you're first starting, especially at my level, it can get so discouraging. Oh, out first lap, tyres are cold, broken the wing, back to the pits, rinse and repeat. Surely it's just a good incentive for you to just stop doing the thing <laughs> you're doing. Well, that's the yeah. way I'd say it. I'm with Kyle. I, I, first of all, I don't even I don't even know how you turn off damage. Um, I've never done that. And second, I I want to have that um, that jeopardy of if I do something wrong, it's going to break the car. So it's more realistic practice. Um, I appreciate if people just want to save time and they want to just be able to go around and like, if someone's learning the Nordschleife, for example, um, it's quite good to just to be able to drive without having to constantly go back five minutes because the track's so long. But on a normal length track, I think you, you should be okay without having to turn off damage. Yeah, so um, I think the argument for it is exactly what Spanner said. If you're in the F3, it can be two or three laps to get the tires up to temperature. And if you are trying to just learn the basic track as quickly as possible, you're saving yourself a lot of times by not a lot of time by not having to rewarm the tires. But you are right. It, it does sound like a bag of broken glass falling downstairs. Sometimes when you hit curbs with the damage on and, and you need to know about that before you go into a race. Can I ask you another question about how I sometimes learn tracks? something that I used to do and I quit doing and I've started doing again, which is using the reference car. I, I used to not use the, I started by using the reference car and realized I wasn't learning the track. I was just following the car. Explain what so that like, is. I don't know what that is. So um, in the options tab, you can load a comparison lap and turn on a reference car. And then it puts like a ghost car in front of you and you can chase it round the circuit. 
Yeah. Um, so having the ghost car, this this is almost like having the virtual racing line on, God forbid, to try and learn the track. <gasps> I don't think these tools is a heinous crime. It really is. Um, I don't I don't agree with these tools at all because I actually think they they can sometimes instill bad habits. You will be as as Trumpets just said, you will be driving to the reference car. If you're learning a track from having the virtual racing line on the floor, you tend to drive to the line and not actually learn the track and what you're doing and you get sucked in. So I personally, I'd say that's a bad thing to do. So I stopped doing it to continue my story of it. And now when I learn a track, I go on the track, I learn the track. But when I get to a certain point where I stall, I'll either set up a reference car with my optimum sector toms or I'll take the official one from PDS or whoever that's like two or three seconds faster. And then I'm, I'm trying to use it as a tool to figure out where I'm losing time and maybe get a hint as to how they're faster through those sections. And I'm, I'm just curious, do you think it's okay to use it once you get to that point? Or do you still see that as, because I've also just used Delta time too, to, to see the same time loss. But some, I find I'm, I learn quicker sometimes with that visual reference. Brad. I'm going to disagree with Kyle probably for the first time ever about anything. Um, I do sometimes <laughs> use that ghost car. Um, I, I don't generally go in and turn it on, but when I do a test session, I must've switched it on at some point. And if I'm driving around the Nord cipher, for example, it'll just suddenly be there as I cross the start line. I think, Oh, that's quite nice. At least I'm not alone on track getting completely bored in this test session. Um, and I just find it's like having a, an even more visual Delta time. It's just like having the green or red, except you can also see the position of the car on the track. So I've got exactly the same information of how far behind or ahead of, of my optimum um, lap term I am, except I can also see what exactly what line I was on when I did that. So I do find it quite useful in that respect. Um, most of the time I'm not learning a track from scratch and most of the time I don't need that. But certainly if I'm just doing maybe testing a new setup for a, a virtual VLN race where you know, they are really long laps. And if you're out there on your own, it can be, it can be just lonely. I do quite like just having that visual thing to chase and knowing immediately, just like with the Delta time, if I do something different, is that better or worse? And I, I think if the tool's there, you can use it. Um, yeah. I may add that Yeah, you, if you talk about reference cars, you're in, it's in your own reference car, your own best lap. Yes. That's, that can be handy as a tool as a visual Delta, as you say. Um, I'd be inclined not to use somebody else's ref, somebody else's reference lap. You need to drive the car and drive the lap how you drive. Somebody might drive very differently to you, and I don't think you, um, I don't think you'll learn much from it. But that's just my personal opinion. I find those things very distracting. If I see the ghost car ahead of me, I find it incredibly distracting. I've never used it on any games. I just I get sucked into that ghost car rather than what I'm actually doing. Oh, this is this too. I don't like it when there's debate. When now, who do I follow? What do I do? Uh, generally, I've always just gone by the Delta time. Um, so just, I think this is quite a quick, uh, it will be quite a quick answer from you guys. But Brad, I've recently gone to having the optimal sector Delta time. Am I doing it right? I mean, this is a little bit down to your preference of what works for you. I generally have optimal lap. And the reason I try and stay away from optimal sector is because just because you were able to do a sector a certain way, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you can do it if you do a different sector better, if that makes any kind of sense. So for example, yeah. when you enter that sector, you might be 
going a bit faster because actually you did the previous corner worse. Maybe you got a really good exit, but you were rubbish on the entry to the hairpin that precedes the section you're at. And then you have an unrealistic expectation of what's actually possible uh, on this kind of theoretical optimal group of sectors. Um, so you're, when you have this optimal sector, you'll see the, if you have a ghost car on, you'll see it kind of jump at certain points because you drove into that sector differently. I have optimal lap on because it, it, I feel like it's a slightly more realistic expectation um, of, of what's actually possible. Yeah, um, I agree. It is a very handy tool. It's also very handy to almost trick yourself in qualifying. I usually just have my best lap delta, but if you accidentally put it to optimal lap delta, I've had this a couple of times and you're pushing, you're like, why am I still down? And then all of a sudden you come to do your best ever lap because you're on the optimum. The one area where to, uh, to be careful in when using this is if you're trying multiple different setups with multiple different downforce levels, because at some point the optimum sector doesn't account for that. So at some point you will be getting an unrealistic picture because your sectors will be multiple different setups each time. So once you start chopping and changing setups a lot, I think it's probably best to go back to your overall best lap rather than the optimal. Two rumpets. Well, as as a way of um, getting into that a little bit more, and I'm suspecting the answer is nobody really knows. Is there a way to set a delta time for yourself? Like, particularly when I do the endurance races, I don't want my optimum lap. That's too fast. I don't want my best session lap because who knows (laughs) what that is. I want to look at all my practices and say, this is the average lap time that I want to run. And I want an indication of if I'm ahead or behind it. I would love a feature like that. And I do not believe... Maybe someone can write in and tell us. I do not believe there is a function for that where you can set a delta just to drive to. This would be incredibly handy for longer races like IGP and you're having to manage tyre wear where you do really want to drive to a delta and don't really want to go much faster than that. That would be an incredibly good tool. Brad, they could just do maths, couldn't they? I think it is possible for you to use someone else's, a bit like with the ghost car. I think you can somehow set a delta that is a real lap that someone actually set. But to just say, I want this to be a one minute 29, I think that makes it near impossible because where did you gain and lose time on this pretend lap that was never set? Like it, it will only know if you were ahead or behind when you got to the finish line, I think. I think, I don't know, that's that's the way I'd see it. But I do believe there's a way of, of setting a delta as long as it was a real lap someone else set. All right, then. And um, okay, uh, let's just finish this up. I mean, we were going to go into race mentality and rage and avoiding disappointment, but I think that would fill up a whole show in itself. I I am in desperate need of a, a sports psychologist and I've been I've been training myself, Kyle, to like not, you know, not blow up when someone punts me from behind or make does something stupid and just trying to well, just start enjoying it all again, even the good and the bad. Well, I'd love to come on again and we could maybe do a show about that. I've developed quite a lot of techniques that work for (laughs) me where I can, where I, I use some mental tools and stuff that I, that I I give myself and patterns to use where I can get myself out of this cycle and refocus and reconcentrate. And especially when you're being hunted down and under pressure, it really works. So I'd love to do a show about that. I I was just laughing because the only tool I use is I just don't push the, uh, push to talk button in the game chat when things like that happen. Uh, I, I have it so that the in-game chat is disabled once the driving starts. So I can say, chat to everyone when I'm out of the car and be like, hey, hi guys, you know, have a good time. Good luck, everyone. And then if I wanted to speak to people, I have to get out of the car. So that's how I stop myself like raging on the on the game chat. Yeah, not 
using the push to talk button at the end of the race is just like a racing driver in real life leaving his helmet on as he's walking back through the paddock <laughs> good well we'll talk about all that because i think the psychology and the the rage element of iRacing is, is an absolutely massive one as well uh, just to wrap up this practice chat in a neat bow let's talk timings i only practice for two hours for the start of the officials i will get an f3 car with all my friends and we'll get on a track and talk to each other and do setups and everything and by the time that two hours is is done i that's me for the week that's the setup i'm using i'm not changing it because i haven't got time uh two hours brad is that is that enough i think that's quite a good amount of practice but it really depends on how much you need uh, i'd like to do i like to practice a uh, this week's track or whatever you know if, if it's a new track or even if it's one i know i like to do it at least a day before the actual event so that i've had a night to kind of sleep on it for it all to sink in and then i'll go back and practice it again the following day and invariably just easily go quicker straight away it's the same with with driving in real life um having a a night for your for your sleep to do whatever it does to help ingrain the knowledge you've learned in the practice into your brain or help you think of new things you'd like to try that always seems to work for me um, but a couple of hours should be ample. I, I normally have around about an hour, whatever it takes to get to be one of the very fastest people in the session and be able to lap consistently like that, not make silly mistakes. And if I find I am still making silly mistakes or it's too easy to crash, I just won't race. So I just wait until I've I've gotten over that. Yeah, I agree. And the muscle memory thing is quite an important thing. Um, you will always, yeah, invariably be better after you've slept on it. And also you get away from the frustrating uh, frustration. It can be incredibly frustrating trying to pound around. And then you start to overdrive and make more mistakes. It's best to back away and then come back to it another day. Uh, with how long practice you should be doing, this is incredibly subjective and it really depends on, on you. Some people pick it up much faster than others. For me personally, some tracks, for instance, um, I did an IGP race at Canada. It's an hour-long race, but I'm quite com- comfortable with that track. I I had essentially about eight or nine laps of practice, and that was it. I felt comfortable. I instantly felt comfortable. I had my routines down. I knew what I was going to do. I knew how I was going to save the tires. I then didn't have any more practice. Uh, two days later, I jumped straight into a race because I was comfortable. Whereas F3 at Belle Isle, <laughs> I had two and a half to three hours practice until I felt comfortable when I had my routine down and I knew what I could follow. So, so, so it's incredibly different and everybody is different. So don't feel bad if you're taking three hours to learn a track. Some people learn it quicker. So quick one on Belle Isle, uh, obviously a street circuit all encased in walls. I found myself, pra- every time I got damage, I practiced going to the pits and that actually came in really handy having to crawl back with like three wheels to get yourself back to the pits. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so different types of practice for different uh, different tracks. Uh, I wonder though, when I sometimes I'm in a practice and I'll be doing it for an hour, I'll, I'll quickly find a, a pace and find that I can't really improve on that lap time. Practice makes permanent. So do I keep going and just in, ingrain that slightly off the pace lap time in my head? Or uh, do you know what I mean? Or do I keep going and push through that barrier? That's That's often the... The, the pattern I find myself stuck in, Matt, where I go, I'm just practicing how to drive this terrible pace. Well, my question would be, are you practicing to be consistent? Or are you practicing to get faster? Like you need to know what you're practicing yeah. for. Like for me, you know, um, well, let's use Road America because we're there this week. Like uh, my fastest lap on Monday was like right around two minutes. And then, but I didn't do any qualifying practice. So yesterday I took like half an hour. Put the quality setup on, drove around, 
and I crashed a bunch at first, but then I had three straight quality runs where I was 59, it was like 59.9. The next one, my fast lap was 59.8. The next one, my fast lap was 59.7. So I'd found some pace and I'm like, okay, that's, I'm done. I don't need to do any more of this because I found a significant, like almost a half a second over Monday. I don't need to practice being consistent because I've already done that on Monday. I've, I've actually found some new yeah. spots and all I need to do now is just go over them before the race and make sure that I remember them all. Okay. So I, I tend to, if I've got time, I will go for speed. If I've, the, the, the closer we get to the event, the more I'm trying to do my race plan and go, right, these are the laps that are going to get me through a race. So for example, Road America, I didn't have a good practice on Monday. Uh, I was distracted and late. So all I've got before the officials tonight, in fact, is I'm going to jump on after the kids go to bed at quarter past eight. So I've just got that hour leading up to the race to try and get into some sort of pace where people aren't just punting me uh, from behind. So that'll all be about a consistent race plan. Guys, I think we've come uh, 50 minutes. I think that's a good amount of time for these shows. Uh, Go and follow my crew. Brad is uh, at Bradley Philpot. On Twitter, uh, go and search for Bradley Philpot YouTube and you'll find his YouTube channel there. He did a stream of the uh, Lucas Oil truck race that we did on Monday, but I'm going to have a video out. So go and search for Spanners iRacing stream on YouTube. Link in the link below, subscribe and you'll get a notification whenever I've finished that that video and I've finished the editing. No promises. Follow Matt at MattPT55 on Twitter there. You can be friends with him on Facebook as well. Search for Matt Trumpet. One U in two rumpets. It's spelt weird. Um, Kyle at KylePowerF1. You can follow the show. No, you can't. Yes, we do. We have a Twitter account at iRacingPodcast. No one else has taken it. Follow at iRacingPodcast. Tell your friends. Uh, share the link below. We, I'll do a sharing link. Tell everyone we exist and kind of encourage this kind of behavior with all podcast projects. They live or die on whether anyone is bothered about it. So uh, leave us an iTunes review, tell your friends, and hopefully we'll be back here next Wednesday to record another show. I'm, I'm at Spanners Ready on Twitter. And wherever I see you again next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This is Missed Apex iRacing Podcast. Someone complained about the original music, so I changed it to the Mist Apex theme. Someone didn't like this one. In fact, a few people. It does make sense to have it uniform. It is pretty cool. I like this. It's funky. Uh, well, the rock one's a bit more kick-ass racing. Yeah, that one's a bit more like, you know, we're introducing our new our new range of post-it notes. Yeah, but let's, you guys are young and cool still. I'm 40-year-old apple-shaped dads. I need this one. That's more quirky. Quirky for me. Down with the cool cats. I don't have any strong preference for either of them. But yeah, the second one isn't quite as cool. No. I'm also not massively into rock, so. Uh, see. Well, maybe let's maybe try some chill hop for the next one. Uh, I, I've left this bit in the podcast, so listeners, let us know. SpannersReady at gmail.com. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big. 